G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Is this really the Word of God? Is this really God's Word? Did He really communicate to us, the Creator of the universe, through Word revelation? Is this the Word of God? Now, this is a big question because of this. If it's not, we should be laughed at. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hello, my name is Bill, and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. In this episode, we're asking, how is the Bible different? Is it really the Word of God, a book in which the creator of the world is revealed? Let's discover more and see what Pastor Jeff has to say on the topic. Here he is as we begin today's message. entitled questions I would like to ask God even though this may not be a difficult one this question is the mother of all questions we can ask in our Christian faith because it has to do with the primary source of information where we get our faith from God now how many of you grew up in churches now it's gonna be a little older crowd but how many of you grew up in churches do you remember the flannel boards come on how many of you, remember when you had Jesus walking on the water Peter was in the boat Bring back the flannel boards. Those were the good old, them were the good old days, weren't they? That's they, amazing. And you remember your Sunday school teacher teaching you those stories? And of course, now, by the way, there are some young people in here right now, they have no idea what a flannel board is. I just saw looking around, they're like, what? what the? Anyway, coolest thing, all right? Really cool. Find out what it is. But as we grew up, we would remember these stories that our parents told us. We'd remember the stories that our Sunday school teachers reiterated to us. And we would recall uh, stories like Daniel and Job and Jonah, and we would kind of take comfort from them and take lessons. But inevitably, like J.D. Drew talked about, those stories did have an impact in our lives. And in the time we made our decision, it was the culmination of all those stories and our belief in the Bible. But here's the problem. Inevitably, in all of our lives, or at least most lives, you get to a point where you have a path to take. Is this really the Word of God? Is this really God's Word? Did He really communicate to us, the Creator of the universe, through Word revelation? Would the Creator of all things actually choose to do that? 1,500 years, a lot of different authors. Is this the Word of God? Now, this is a big question because of this. If it's not, we should be laughed at. Because everything we believe about Jesus, everything we believe about being a Christian, the reason we're here this morning originates from right here, either passed down through oral tradition from your parents or grandparents or your reading of the word. Now, that's a pretty big ask. And when I tell the skeptic that this is the word of God, I'm usually laughed at. The word of God to us 
and we can actually trust it? Well, that's my next question. How can I trust that this is the Word of God? How can I be sure this is God's Word to us? What makes this book any different than any other book ever written? Why is it different from any other religious book? Now, that's the big question. Here's what I want to do. Because I think it is a huge question. I'm going to pretend as I'm a lawyer today. And I'm going to give you three exhibits. Exhibit A, Exhibit B, and Exhibit C in an effort to make an argument for the fact that this indeed is the Word of God come down through the writing of men, but inspired by God. So here's the first exhibit. Exhibit A, the Bible claims to be the Word of God. Now you say, hold on a second. Just because the Bible claims the Word of God doesn't mean that it is. That's true. But what we don't want to do is attribute something to the Bible that the Bible doesn't claim for itself. And in this first exhibit, I'm simply saying the Bible does claim to be the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul, writing to a young Timothy as a preacher, says all Scripture, that is the Greek word graphe, that which is, has been written, all Scripture is breathed out by God, spoken by, that means, it, 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 some translations might say God breathed. Either way, it's signifying that it originates, it's about origination, it originates from God, from His mind, it is God spoken and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. And then, of course, Peter, a disciple who became an apostle, writes this in 2 Peter chapter 1, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy, in other words, nothing that was spoken of Scripture, nothing that is spoken that has been written comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All right, now look up just a second. Now, you make a severe error if you think that the Bible writers, it was like a Ouija board, like kind of God inspired them and they went into a trance and they wrote the scripture. I'll make this straight. John 3, 16. Okay, four, got it. God got it. So loved, got it. The world. That's not the, how it, the, the way that it happened. The doctrine of inspiration can be best described like this as translated from this phrase, carried along by the spirit. Imagine a man who is driving a horse-drawn carriage. And as long as the horses stay on path, there is no need for there to be a tight rein or for them to pull the horses back into the center. But if the horses at any point start getting off the path, then the reins become tighter and the driver pulls them back into the center. This is called the doctrine of inspiration. In other words, God allowed these men to use their characteristics, their temperaments, their research, their personalities, their writing styles, but he inevitably was responsible for the final product. So that when you read Paul, Paul is incredibly systematic. He's a deep thinker. He's always thinking about what somebody's going to ask or say in response to what he's previously written. So he writes systematically. You go over to Peter and read what Peter wrote. He's a sanguine. He's all over the place. But in the end, he pulls it back to the center. You think about, you think about John just for a moment. John was enamored with the love of Jesus. And so John, when he writes, writes just penetratingly about the topic of love and the love of God for us. The point is, God is responsible for the final product, but men using their mind, vocabularies, and experiences were carried along by God. Now think about this for a moment. How hard is that really for God? If God's the creator of the universe and everything that exists in the world of you and me and the galaxy, the ones we see, the ones we cannot see, how hard would it be for God to inspire some men by the Holy Spirit using their personalities and research to give to us the final product of what he wanted to communicate to us. 
And doesn't it make sense that God would communicate to us in language? Because that's how we communicate to each other. And so the only thing I'm saying here, I'm not saying that this proves the Bible's the Word of God. I'm just saying, let's not attribute to the Word of God something that the Word of God does not claim for itself. And it says that the Bible claims to be the Word of God, inspired by God, written to the hands of men. Now, Exhibit B. The Bible is completely accurate in its historical references. Exhibit B, the Bible is completely accurate in its historical references. Now, when somebody makes a comment to me, well, I don't believe Jesus ever lived. I think it's myth and legend. My immediate response is, well, then you're just ignorant. In, in a nice way, you're ignorant of how we determine who lives and who dies and who does not exist and the impact they have on the world. Now, let me give you something that maybe you've never heard before. We do not need the Bible to know Jesus lived. Don't need it. Other first century historians wrote about Jesus, his ministry, his life, and his doings. Even if we didn't have the Bible, we could read the Roman historian Tacitus. We could read the works of the Jewish historian uh, uh, Josephus or Thales, who wrote a history of the Eastern Mediterranean world, or Pliny the Younger, and so forth and so on. There are many others. If you didn't have the Bible, if you didn't even have the Bible, by first century, second and third century historical resources, we would know the following. I've listed them for you. Without the Bible, we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that there lived a man named Jesus, born in Bethlehem, in the house of David, raised in Nazareth, who was a Jewish teacher. We know that he performed miracles and exorcisms. Now, miracles were not that big a deal in the first century like they are today, where we have a hard time believing them. First century, somebody achieved a miracle, the credit was given where credit is due. We have outside historians externally to the Bible recording that Jesus was somebody who performed miracles. Most of you probably didn't know that. We have many people knowing from that first century context believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He was rejected by Jewish leaders. We know by outside resources other than the Bible that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius, that thousands upon thousands believed in his resurrection and followed him diligently even to the point of death. We know that Christianity spread beyond Palestine so that there were thousands and thousands of Christians in Rome by AD 64 and that people from all walks of life, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, slave and free, worshiped Jesus Christ as God. Now, that's just a reminder. And folks, I'm trying to do a message in 30 minutes that usually takes me four weeks. So you got to hold on. I got to talk fast or I won't get it in. So the first thing I want you to know is we don't need the Bible to know that Jesus is a real man in history that impacted his people, his place, the land of Palestine. But it goes much deeper than that. Did you know? Way past that. You and I are, have the opportunity, the privilege of living in a generation that now we know and we can categorically state that any time in the past when a historical reference has contradicted a biblical reference, that the biblical reference has proven every time to be the more certain or trustworthy. I just want to give you, now we could stand up here and just rattle off the examples. Can I give you just a few? The first one is this. If you look over in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, we have Luke, who was a personal physician to the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of your New Testament. He is also an historian first rate. He recorded the events of the early church. And in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, he mentions at the end of that verse, that Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. For years, historians said, ha ha. Well, maybe they didn't say ha ha, but they said, Luke cannot be trusted because we know that he's wrong. Lysanias was not tetrarch, but rather he was ruler of Chalcis a half century earlier. 
And of course, they cast doubt on Luke and said he couldn't be trusted. But as has often happened, an archaeological dig uncovered the inscription from the time of Tiberius from 14 to 37 AD. It names Lysanias as Tetrarch in Abilet near Damascus, just as Luke had written. Now, folks, this is one example. It happens time and time again. Let me give you another one. Acts chapter 17, verse 6. The historian Luke makes reference to politarchs, which is translated in your New Testament, city officials in the city of Thessalonica. Now, the problem is scholars said for years that Luke cannot be trusted because there's no evidence of the term politarchs to be found anywhere in ancient Roman literature. But today, if you and I could board an airplane, I could take you to the British Museum and I would show you where archaeologists have found more than 35 inscriptions that mention politarchs, several from the Thessalonica period. So that now, in the 21st century, we can categorically state that where there have been contradictions between the historical records and biblical accounts, archaeological discoveries have proven the biblical account to be the more accurate, not once or twice, but every single time. Now, let me give you one of my favorite examples. The Old Testament makes frequent reference to the Hittites, the nation of the Hittites, who were arch enemies to the nation of Israel. And for many, many hundreds of years, scholars said there's no evidence of the Hittites ever existing. Therefore, the Old Testament cannot be trusted. And then something interesting happened in 1906 when during an archaeological dig, we uncovered and confirmed the existence of the Hittites and in fact unearthed the capital city along with 40 other cities that make up their empire. That fact, as well as many others, has led John McRae, who is the scientist at National Geographic, calls when they want to find out more information about the intricate details of geography associated with the ancient world. Here's what he says. There's no question that archaeological findings have enhanced the New Testament's credibility. No discovery, no discovery has ever disproved a biblical reference. Now, when I talk about these things, I don't like to sling mud. You know what they say about slinging mud? You know, you get your hands dirty and you lose a lot of ground. I don't want to sling mud, but from time to time, it is important for me to contrast and compare Jesus and the Bible with other religious beliefs. I do that patiently and I hope lovingly. But just let me give you an example found in the Book of Mormon, for instance. The Book of Mormon mentions a vast civilization. It existed in the Americas between 600 B.C. and 400 A.D. It names the tribes, the cities, the mountains, the rivers, and the coinages. Only one big problem. There is not one single historian inside or outside the Mormon church that's produced a single shred of evidence or artifact that would sustain any of the claims of the Book of Mormon when it comes to this vast civilization. When I have confronted my Mormon friends or those who knock on my door with this fact, they say to me, that's just the way it is. You have to accept it by faith. My response is, no, I don't. Jesus does not call me to blind faith. He consistently asks me, where does the evidence point? Jesus says, for me to be a Christian, I don't check my intellect at the door. I use my intellect and the wisdom of God will guide me toward intellectual questions that will eventually eventuate in my faith in Jesus Christ and the word. All I'm saying, all I'm saying in this first thing is A, the Bible claims to be the Word of God. B, that the Bible is extremely accurate. In fact, perfectly accurate in its historical references. But let's be honest. 
Neither one of those proved that the Bible is the word of God. I want you to stay with me here. Folks, this was a big thing for me in my journey around the age of 23. I was at a point in my life when I could have gone either way, preacher or non-believer. I mean, it was a fine line. Remember that some of you were worried about your children. Be patient. Let them ask their questions. Don't get angry with them. My mom and dad were brilliant at this, just tolerating me when I probably should have been smacked a lot more or more often than I was. But, oh, I can't say that. I might be arrested. Never mind. I was at a time in my life when I was right on the line, and this was the issue for me. Come on, the word of God, I've got to have something special. I've got to have something that convinces me this is the word of God. And just because the Bible claims to be, and just because it's accurate in historical references, there are other books that are accurate in historical references. There's got to be something more. What I'm about to give you in Exhibit A, I believe, is very powerful. But I've got to build the stage and then just let it all come out, and I think it will encourage all of us. I do it like this. I want to start by, I was in New Zealand in one of those university conferences, and I had a young Muslim come up to me and say, look, man, I'd li- I, heard, I heard what you said, and I appreciate the loving way you presented it. He said, but I'd like to have lunch with you because I have some things I'd like to say. I said, great, let's have lunch. You pay, and I'll pray, and we'll eat. And so he paid, and I prayed, and we ate. And he looked across the table at we were about to start dessert, and he said, Pastor Jeff, I appreciate everything you've said. I've heard it, but I just have one statement to make. And I think this must be popular because I've heard this numerous times since then. He said, I don't see any difference between Jesus or Muhammad. You try to say there's a difference, but they're two great men, great religious leaders. I said, is that true? He said, yes. I said, can I ask you a question? He agreed. I said, is it not true that even the Quran explicitly states that Jesus was virgin born? He said, yes. I said, and you don't think there's a difference between Jesus and Muhammad? Now, he looked at me with glazed eyes as if no one had ever confronted him with that. I mean, Jesus is unique, uniquely different. I don't know how that goes together, but he is different than any other religious leader. Hey, it's, hey I'm tired, okay? But he is different. He lived a sinless life, claimed resurrection from the dead, and was born a virgin. And if you can't see how that distinguishes him from Muhammad, then that's a whole other intellectual argument. But here's the point. In the same way that Jesus, as a religious leader, distinguishes himself from every other religious leader, the Bible also has a distinguishing mark that in my mind proved to me that it is the Word of God. I can trust it. God's revelation to man. Here's what it is. Exhibit C. The Bible contains the fingerprint of God. Exhibit C. The Bible contains the fingerprint of God. Of God. It contains the fingerprint of God. Now, look up again just for a moment. I want to take you back to 1910 to the house of Clarence Hiller in Indiana. Clarence had a two story house. He's upstairs. He's asleep with his wife and his daughter down the hallway. The nightlight is still on, so he gets up out of bed in the middle of the night, wakes up his wife. Some things never change. Go into the daughter's bedroom to turn out the light. His wife is startled when she hears a rumbling and a tumbling down the stairs, two gunshots, and then the slamming of the front door. She runs down and finds her husband dead, two uh, gunshot wounds lying on the kitchen floor. About a mile and an hour later, this is 1910, they find a man by the name of Thomas Jennings. They find him with a gun. The gun is missing two bullets out of the chamber, But this is 1910, so they couldn't watch CSI Miami, CSI New York, CSI Las Vegas. They had, they had, fingerprints had never been used. 
in a, in a, in a trial. And so they took the gun, they took Thomas Jennings, and it just so happened, do you know what Clarence Hiller had spent the day doing? Painting his house. And it just so happened that the paint around the windowsill was still wet when he broke into the house. And so they found fingerprints. They compared those fingerprints with that of Thomas Jennings, and it's the first case in American history where somebody was sent to prison on the basis of fingerprint evidence. Now, why do you tell me that story, Jeff? I need the fingerprints of God on this book. I need something special to make me believe that it is the word of God and more than claiming to be the word of God and more than being accurate in historical references. Although I would expect those to be true if it is indeed the word of God. When I was younger, 23, I had a little talk with God. Now, tolerate this. I thought, God, if this is really your word, then I got a cool thing. Why not? Every time we open it, there's a big hologram that comes up. And it's God saying, this is my word. This is my word. This is. And he's just kind of spent. Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that would convince me? Just open it up. Whoosh. There it is. Star Wars did it. Surely God can. <laughs> there's got to be something special. Okay. Here's what the special thing is. Let me say it and then build it. Now, I got to do this in five minutes, and usually I get about two weeks. So hang on tight. Because of the age in which you and I live, and interestingly enough, it's the most doubting age, but in because we live in this generation, we now are able, through science, not art, we can date books or works of literary antiquity. We can know when those books were written based on what kind of material upon which they were written or the ink used. We can even date the copies of those books and when they were written by the same type of thing, ink or parchments or papyrus, whatever it is, it has become a science. We can date right down almost to the, within a five to ten year span, when a book, a work of literary antiquity was published and written and then again when it was copied and how many copies we have. This, folks, is a science. It's not an art, not a legend. Now we are able to go back and date precisely when the books in your Bible were written. So that when you open your Bible and you read about time and date and place and it dates your book, it's not some art or not some entertaining reading. It's to help you understand that this is a science. We can date when the books of the Bible were written and the books of our first copies and how many copies we have of the New and Old Testament. Why is that important? Because somebody now is going to have to explain something to me. How is it that men who lived five, six, and seven hundred years before Jesus was ever born prophesied over 48 specific detailed prophecies, all of which were fulfilled in detail by Jesus Christ. Now, folks, be careful. We're not talking about general prophecies here. We're not talking about Nostradamus, who makes a prophecy like there will be an earthquake somewhere in the world. We're not talking about Gene Dixon, who died in 1997, who was notorious for making false prophecies. We're not talking about the kind of prophecy that says, I predict, I'm hearing it from God, that the sun will rise tomorrow. Not that kind. Chances are you're going to be right. We're talking about detailed, specific prophecies that we know. This makes this what makes the, this what this is what makes the Bible. Can you tell I'm a little excited about this? <laughs> this is what makes the Bible different than any other book. You've been listening to today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. Now you talk about believing in the fantastical. Chances of fulfilling just eight of all the prophecies made about the Messiah, one in 100 million billion. How great are those odds? 
that somebody could fulfill just eight of the 48, the odds alone say it's impossible for anyone to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies, and yet Jesus, and only Jesus, managed to do it. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.